Welcome to the North Star Unplugged Podcast, brought to you from Bozeman, Montana. Your host is Kristen Rainey, the founder and CEO of North Star Sleep School, providing online and in-person sleep courses to help you get better rest. The North Star Unplugged Podcast is about rest and rejuvenation, and it's also about unplugging from technology, transitions, and transformations, and spending time and energy on the things that really matter, which are different for all of us. You can find the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Finally, you can also see all prior episodes on the North Star Sleep School website at www.northstarsleepschool.com. Hi, everyone. It's Kristen, and today I'm here with Jesse Friedman. Currently based in Portland, Oregon, Jesse and his wife, Laura, are well into a multi-year project called United Noshes, in which they're building community through a dinner series in which they're cooking all the flavors in the world. Jesse, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So this multi-year dinner series, United Noshes, is pretty ambitious. Um, first, can you give listeners an overview of some of the nuts and bolts of this initiative? Sure. So we are cooking one meal from every country in the world in alphabetical order, from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe. And we do it as a dinner party where we have friends and new friends uh, generally in our house. And we do it as a fundraiser for charity. Uh, we're currently supporting Mercy Corps, and we've raised over $50,000 over the course of 152 meals. Amazing. Um, and when you and your wife, Laura, were initially, you know, thinking of this idea back in 2011 when you were based in Brooklyn, what was going through your mind and, you know, what inspired you to get this going? Uh, well, there are two parts of it. One, in New York, most people, you typically don't hang out in each other's house or apartment, as it were. Um, you know, if you're meeting up with a friend, it's usually for like dinners or drinks and it's expensive. and you know, you got to go home eventually. And it just kind of lacks the warmth of, you know, really spending time inside somebody's house. So we were looking for a reason to have people over more often. Um, and also living in New York with all the incredible uh, diversity of people for sure. But as somebody who's been really interested in food my whole life, I wanted to figure out a way to engage with it more. And in fact, our first idea was like, well, maybe let's go to a restaurant from every country in the world. But it turns out someone else had that gimmick going already. So you're like, well, why don't we combine the two things we want to do and figure out how to cook the food? And it turns out people are doing that too, but we like the idea so much we just did it anyway. And how did you arrive at 194 countries as the total count? I mean, there is no perfect way to break down all the countries of the world or the cuisines or the ethnicities or anything else. But we figured that the most, maybe not non-controversial, but at least the most solid way to go would just be the UN member list. And there are major things that are missing from there. For example, Taiwan is not a member of the UN uh, or Hong Kong or many other places uh, like that. But also, uh, you know, you then lack some diversity. For example, India being one country is kind of ludicrous when it comes to cuisine because there are so many cuisines within it. 
whereas there are many countries that have very similar cuisine. But for all the flaws, it just seemed to be the the best system to go with. And also being in New York, the home of the UN, it just felt germane to do it that way. And what if a country's name changed during this multi-year period uh, that you've been doing the dinner series? So that has happened um, a couple of times. Now, only one country has been added in the meantime, and it's South Sudan, which we haven't even gotten that far in the alphabet yet, so that doesn't matter. But there have been a couple of times when a country's name kind of leapt over where we were in the alphabet. So, for example, uh, last year, Swaziland became Eswatini, starting with an E, and so we would have missed it entirely. And our unwritten bylaws say that you just as soon as you find out about the name change, that's the next meal that you cook. So we had a meal from Eswatini last year uh, for that circumstance. Similarly, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, which starts with the letter T in the weird alphabetization of the UN. Anyway, they changed to North Macedonia. So similarly, we did that. And for those who haven't been to... S was Eswatini, uh, formerly Swaziland <laughs> in Southern Africa. What are some examples? What did you guys cook that night? Uh, let's see. Um, I remember we did a dish that involved uh, pumpkin leaves or squash leaves. Uh, luckily, I, it was in the summer and I was growing zucchini so I could uh, get some of those. And in fact, I found a vendor at the farmer's market here that was also selling them. Uh, it was an Asian vendor, so it's kind of cool to see how people in different parts of the world find the same ingredient, ways to use the same ingredients. Um, there was definitely kind of a, a mushy, what they would call a pap, like a, a kind of a, a porridgey thing. Um, and if I'm remembering correctly, there was, uh, there's probably something involving peanuts as well. Uh, not much meat though. Um, in that part of the world, uh, meat is, uh, definitely a luxury. Um, pretty sure we did something with beans. So I know the dinners, of course, have taken a pause for COVID. Uh, when was the last yeah. dinner? The last dinner was March 5th uh, for Saudi Arabia. Um, and yeah, it, it's so funny thinking back at it. That was what, like maybe 10 days before we all went into total lockdown. And there was one friend who was there who had like, it didn't feel great a couple of days afterwards. And we were all like, Oh no. And of course it, it didn't turn out to be what we had all feared, but that was actually the first moment uh, when we had this sense. And it was very clear that we weren't going to be hosting parties for a while. And so out of the 194 countries, where are you at? So our next is going to be Senegal, uh, which I'm really looking forward to. I, I've learned to love West African food through this cooking. Um, and Senegal's kind of, to, you know, I think to, to people who are, I mean, there's, as with any region in the world, you'll find arguments over whether it's Senegalese or Nigerian or Sierran or any other cuisines within there. But I think Senegalese is, uh, kind of, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for it, but who knows when that's going to be? I'm still expecting it to be several months. And what, what number is that in the lineup? How far along are you? It's going to be 153 out of 194. So we're, we're making our way. There are 20 countries that begin with the letter S. So this is like our last really big chunk to get through. 
So do you and Laura, I know this is sort of the million dollar question for all of us, whether you know, you're having united noshes in your home or whether you're just interested in having your neighbors over for dinner, but do you have any sense of how you'll make the decision of when to have people inside again? Is it, is it simply just you know, when the vaccine's widely available or will you be asking people whether they've had it before they come into your home um, or only having backyard events? What's your, what's your take on that? Uh, that's a really good question. My hunch is, I mean, we'll follow whatever the public health guidance is. Um, so, I mean, probably, I mean, it'll probably be in the backyard if only because the summer seems like it might be the time when that starts and we like to eat outside when we can anyway. But, you know, we have about 14, 16 people over at a time. And when you have that many people, you know, I want to be really darn sure that we're going to be safe. I don't want to be risky about it. Um, so we'll probably be on the more cautious end to start that, especially I don't want to, you know, when we resume, I want it to be a party. You know, I want it to be a really fun, big deal. And, you know, if it's got to be four people who are, you know, spaced apart by 10 feet, that's just no fun. So, uh, well, it'll probably be a while longer. When you started this, did you and Laura have any sense of how many years this would take? And did you think that you'd be able to continue at the same intense pace of that first year? Oh, man. I mean, we I think we estimated maybe six or seven years. Now we're on year 10, I guess. Um, I mean, the yeah, the first full calendar year, we did 32 meals in our tiny Brooklyn kitchen. and. I mean, in retrospect, that's ludicrous, but we were younger. We had more energy. We didn't have a kid. We had fewer pets. So we just had more time and energy for that. Um, But more than keeping ourselves to a schedule, I mean, it was just more of an idle estimation. We were just like, it's going to take as long as it takes. And if we're ever not having fun, we're going to stop. You know, the only people holding ourselves to it was us. And we just keep doing it because it's fun. So in addition to the curveball of COVID, of course, you also had the major life change you just mentioned of having a baby. Um, when you had a baby, did that reduce the frequency of the dinners or inspire you as sleep-deprived new parents to simplify them in any way? Well, we took a break for several months, but the thing is that we, we came to realize we were craving adult company, you know, when you spend all the time with your child. And there's this counterintuitive aspect where it actually helps to have people over in your house because you can put the baby down to bed and just keep going. And, you know, someone can run up if there's a problem that there typically isn't because Josie's a good sleeper. Um, so after about six months, we just went back for it. Um, we've uh, sometimes we'll have a babysitter or, or a grandparent kind of assigned to keep track of the baby while we do the hosting. But you've kind of, yeah, we've kind of gotten back on our groove. Um, I mean, there's more negotiation of like, you know, working the meal prep in with the shared responsibility of, of kid care. But I think now once, you know, Josie's old enough, like she's helping in the kitchen now. It's amazing. She's 21 months old. And so like for our next meal, she's going to be able to help a little bit. I'm so excited about that. You have a sous chef. I have the littlest sous chef. So it, is it, it, did it end up being like roughly once a month that you were having these after the you know, crazy first year and obviously aside from COVID or from you know, immediately having your yeah. baby? At the fr- yeah, I think, it, yeah, in New York, we did it a little more than once a month. I think every couple of weeks is kind of mm-hmm. what we landed on. But now our kind of default in our, in our Portland parenthood life, once a month is 
a lot. That's, yeah. that's kind of what we shoot for. So of all the dinners that you've had so far, are there any that were particularly memorable in a good way or a bad way? <laughs> We've got both. Um, I'll start with the bad way first. Um, the absolutely most difficult meal to stomach was Bhutan. Um, for a couple of reasons. One, I couldn't find the kind of creamy yak cheese that's really inherent to the cuisine. And I found some advice about using some combination of feta blue and cream cheese. And it was just gross. Um, I'm going to figure that my substitute was worse than the original. Um, also the national dish is stir fried chili peppers with that cheese and we just couldn't eat it. And the salted butter tea didn't really help it go down either. So we invented the term milkshake meal because we went out for milkshakes after that meal to satisfy ourselves. But there have been so many other ones that have been memorable in many different ways. For example, for the Mauritanian meal, um, we had a whole family over that had lived there for several years. And not only did they come dressed up in the garb, but they did a whole tea ceremony, not ceremony, but kind of circle on our living room carpet uh, after the meal to like sit around and pass the cup around and, and tell stories and talk about how the only thing missing from our meal was sand. There should have been more sand in the goat, apparently. Um, and then, uh, well, one of the ones that you were at, Kristen, uh, for Mongolia, uh, I mean, one of the most fun things about this is learning of novel cooking techniques I never otherwise would have used, but a traditional way to cook when you're a nomad who can't slip around heavy pots is you heat up rocks and you drop them in a lightweight pot and that is what cooks your your lamb soup and that was so fun that was fun i can't say i'm totally surprised about um bhutan being a slightly disappointing uh from a culinary perspective <laughs> you know from my brief time living over there um i my, my my memory from a culinary perspective is being at someone's house and trying not to be rude. So I remember having this piece of semi-rancid, you know, dried yak meat in my mouth and making a really poor decision of thinking that if I drank more water, it would help the process along instead of just prolonged it. Um, oh, and I, I actually ate a lot of momos that year. I remember the, the canteen where I had lunch at where I was working at the uh, World Food Program had a lot of momos. So part of me is sort of surprised that you guys didn't do any momos, but I know you've had momos at many other meals. So maybe you were saying yeah. Yeah, we did. I mean, I mean, and so that brings up another point is that, you know, finding the threads through all the different cuisines, like, you know, the number from, you know, pierogi to mandu and everything in between, the number of cultures that figured out that you can like roll out some dough, put something in the middle, twist it together and cook it. It's kind of amazing all the variations on that. I'd love to talk a little bit about the the philanthropic element of United Nauseous. Um, and would love to hear a little more about how that got started and how that's evolved over the years. Yeah, well, speaking of World Food Program, that was um, kind of where we started. So uh, we knew that our guests, so it, it, the idea really started as, you know, the food and the camaraderie. And then we realized that our guests were going to want to contribute somehow, but we would just feel really weird just asking them to like pitch in for the cost of the food or whatever. and. So that and also the just the acknowledgement of our tremendous good fortune to be able to enjoy the 
the foods of the world, eating foods that people who live in those very countries sometimes wouldn't be able to have on a, a frequent basis just based on their financial position. So we thought the, the best way to kind of acknowledge our, our good fortune and our appreciation for the foods of the world would be to help people who needed help eating. So we, uh, for the first several years, we supported the World Food Program, partly again, because we were in New York and that was the home of the UN. Um, and World Food Program, as you know, is a UN program. Um, and then uh, when we moved to Portland, it turns out that there is a major international relief organization here called Mercy Corps. Um, and so it was kind of a natural fit to support them. And so we switched over. And in fact, we've had many people from Mercy Corps at our meals over the years, which has been great to kind of see how that all ties together. And I mean, they do more than just pure food relief, but, you know, it's close enough link that it's felt really good. How did you initially get the word out for people to come? Was it initially, um, you know, friends, close friends or family who would come? How did it, how did it start off? Yeah, we started, we, you know, emailed our friends and would just talk about it with people and they would just kind of show up and we create, we created a mailing list and then we got some press. Um, we've had two rounds of press kind of the first in New York, we were featured, I think it was in Grub Street, uh, which is a pretty popular local, uh, food, food blog. And I, one or two others, I think might, might've picked us up and that was definitely enough to, to get enough attention to keep us to keep our table full sometimes if there was a meal that was kind of lagging we'd be like you know hey friend you know we've got an extra seat you want to come um and then soon after we moved to portland in the same weekend we got national coverage on npr's weekend edition as well as on a local talk show uh called think out loud and so within a couple of days we got hundreds of more signups and that's really kind of been what we've mined. And then of course, as we go along, as we meet people, it's also been a great way. Like when you re remember meeting people, um, but <laughs> you know, when you, when you would meet someone and kind of want like an excuse to hang out with them again, but in a kind of non-threatening way, it's a great way to not like hanging out threatening, but you know, in a non-awkward way, you could say, Hey, we do this dinner party series. You should come sometime. And if they come and it's a great way to get to know people a little more and see if you want to become better friends with them. Have you met other folks uh, throughout these years who are doing a similar initiative? I have. Um, you know, we all tend to find each other when we're researching meals for more obscure countries at the beginning of the alphabet, such as um, Andorra, for example, which there just isn't much out there about. But um, the the best known among those of us, you know, alphabetic adventurers, if you if you will is uh, someone named uh, Sasha Martin, uh, a global table adventure, and she's written a book about her thing, and she's uh, based in Tulsa. And in fact, we've met a few times. Um, we uh, stopped by her house uh, when we were on a cross-country road trip, for instance. And you know, her perspective is different. Hers, uh, she's more focused on kind of introducing her family to the flavors of the world rather than making a whole community thing. Although. I do know that kind of on the side, she has done some pretty major like fundraising events with Foods of the World and things. And I also just love that she's done it in a place like Tulsa, which you wouldn't figure would be an easy place to get the ingredients you'd need to cook some 
pretty out there foods, but she's found a way and that's great. Um, and there are plenty of other people who have been doing things like this. Some, many just for their own, you know, entertainment, but others, you know, as ways to like keep groups of friends together and things like that. What's the guest cap and has that stayed constant or are the dinners larger now since you've moved from your 500 square foot Brooklyn apartment to a larger house in Portland with a backyard? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it changes. I mean, when our smallest place in Brooklyn, we could only have six guests plus me and Laura. I mean, I would sit there. Kitchen was also the dining room and I could reach to the stove from my chair uh, which was slightly convenient, but mostly just <laughs> a very small kitchen. Uh, now in our house, we pull in a second table and we can have 14 people plus, plus us. Um, and then in the backyard, we can have even more. And I'm kind of a more the merrier guy with these sorts of things because it's much easier to scale. And then we can raise more money. We can have more people over. I can maybe cook an extra dish or two. Um, I, definitely more often recruit people to help me cook uh, for the last hour or two, especially to just get everything together. Um, but, but yeah, so we, we adjusted the circumstance and there have been a few meals where we've gone really big a um, couple times in New York. And then once here in Portland, we've done essentially ticketed events um, that have raised a lot of money at a time. And that's, that's a different kettle of fish. But that's also been fun to do. And I would love to do another one or two of those before we wrap up. Were those for specific countries? Yeah. So for the, uh, the one we did here in Portland was for Libya, which happened to be halfway through the alphabet. So we made that a big celebration event. We got Whole Foods to uh, sponsor some of the food, uh, things like that. And we actually did it at the Oregon Culinary Institute. So it was weird. I was leading a kitchen with like, a, a true chef and culinary students who were like giving me way more deference than anyone that I've ever earned in the kitchen, which is really <laughs> a strange and awkward position. So speaking of uh, having this event at other locations aside from your home, I know you've sort of taken United Noshes on the road a few times. Can you share more mm-hmm. about that? Yeah. So, I mean, again, in years when we could travel, uh, but some, you know, if we would be just, going to visit a friend, maybe going to another place for a wedding or a work event or whatever, if we could squeeze it in, it would be fun to, um, to host an event at a friend's home. So we've done them in, in Boston, DC, in the Bay area at a couple different places and up in Tacoma where Laura's from. Um, and hopefully we'll get to do a few more like that. And it's fun to kind of share the love with some friends and other people who, you know, are fans of the of the project, but just don't live near us. Um, yeah, it's it's been a fun adventure. And then, of course, for me, it's a, an experience to figure out where I'm going to get the ingredients wherever I am. You know, I found my way to a Nigerian market in L.A. when we were with friends down there, for instance, um, taking me to parts of cities that I never would have otherwise explored. And that was really cool. What's the process for how someone signs up? I know you mentioned your mailing list earlier. Yep. You go to unitednoshes.com. There's a sign up uh, on the top of the page and you just plug it in. And whenever we get back to it, we'll, we'll send out emails. I mean, for the foreseeable future, it's probably just going to be here in Portland and maybe the Bay because we're down there frequently. That's where my, well, typically we're down there frequently. That's where my parents are, but you never know where we're going to end up. 
How has the, the, the process of preparing for these meals and, and, and hosting them changed at all over the years? I'd say the core process is pretty consistent in terms of the research. I mean, it starts by usually trying to find some overview of the cuisine. Um, sometimes that's Wikipedia. Uh, that sometimes it'll be, you know, a blog post or a, tr- you know, from a guidebook or something like that. Um, it really depends on kind of the, the size and the prominence of the cuisine within Western culture. Um, so for example, with a, a country like France or India or Mexico, the, you know, these big countries with tremendously diverse and well-documented and storied cuisines, it's more a process of elimination at that point of figuring out you know, what is going to make the most kind of coherent whole, uh, something that, uh, you know, represents some sense of the diversity of the regions and the ingredients and the techniques. Um, and I kind of aim for a kind of what would be an abundant like birthday party or something like that. Like not maybe as extravagant as a wedding, but certainly a little more done up than just, you know, a typical Tuesday night meal. Um, and then for other countries, it's kind of a scramble to see what I can find. For example, uh, Pacific Island countries can be really difficult to get a sense of recipes, partly because I don't think that that's kind of how the cuisine is thought of in terms of recipes. It's more about like, a, well, what ingredients do we have and what are the ways that we know that they go together in a, in a tasty way? Um, so sometimes I have to get really creative and I found my way to many like, you know, blogs from 10 years ago by Peace Corps volunteers who described a visit to a house and a way that they prepared a fish. And that's kind of the best I have to go on. Um, Of course, whenever possible, I'll try to find my way to somebody who's either from there or has spent time in a given country. And that's been very helpful. Um, And of course, I would love to have these folks at the, at the meal as well to, a, critique my cooking and say what I did right and did wrong, but also, you know, to share stories about where they're from and all that. Um, and, you know, to me, the most gratifying, first of all, I love it when I get super honest advice, like feedback. Somebody would be like, this is fine. I have no idea what you did here. I've never eaten anything like this. Like, I, I love that candor. But there have been a couple moments when people, I remember um, I cooked what to me seemed like a very basic soup for Finland, just like, chopped carrots and peas and a couple of light things like this. And it nearly brought tears to this one guy's eyes saying, this is what my grandmother used to make. <laughs> and so it's, it's kind of cool to have that reflection. But anyway, um, so once I've done the research, I got to come up with all the ingredient lists and then figure out, well, if I can't find particular ingredients, what are going to be the backups to that? And sometimes it's a wild goose hunt across, you know, East Portland typically, because that's the more diverse part of the, the city where you're going to find ethnic markets from representing various places. And at the end of the day, just kind of make do with what you got and forge ahead. So this research process is pretty extensive. How much in advance usually do you get started um, in in doing that? And typically like how many hours are you spending for each of these meals? I'd say a couple weeks in advance is what I try to do. Um, And I probably good five to 10 hours of really kind of scouring the internet and looking through things. I'd say at this point, 
it'll either be shorter or longer. Like for some countries where, you know, say I've cooked the meals from adjacent countries, so I have a decent sense of what's going on and I can kind of zero in on the differences. Uh, sometimes that can be faster or sometimes I can get so down the rabbit hole of figuring out like, well, in this place, they use this kind of sugar, but here they use that kind of sugar. So how does that affect how the cake is going to rise or something like that? And I can get really down the rabbit hole and it's fun. Honestly, I, I really enjoy that part. And then at some point I got to be like, all right, I just got to go shopping and <laughs> just take care of this. You mentioned that throughout uh, the east side of Portland, you're able to to find a lot of these ingredients. Have you ever had to order things online that you haven't been able to find in Portland? Done it a few times. The problem is I'm usually doing the shopping a day or two before the meal (laughs) at best. So it's usually not enough time. But I've now gotten a bit of a sense of what I'm not going to be able to find. Mm. Um, So there's only been a few things, though. For the most part, I just don't do it. but for example, uh, for the Maldives and also for Sri Lanka, there's this particular, like, super hard dried tuna that I was reading about early enough to get the sense of like, you know what, I, I just don't know where I'm going to get that. So I did order that. Um, but, or um, for... I don't know if it was, it wasn't the Indonesian meal, but it was somewhere around there where there are these dishes made from the scraped out, the hollowed out inside of the sago palm, which makes something that's similar to tapioca. And sometimes tapioca is called sago because of that, but it's different. And so I found a way to mail order it and it turns out it's utterly bland. And I spent a lot of money to get something that I didn't enjoy. And maybe I screwed up in cooking it anyway, but that's how it goes. So on the on the flip side, has has any of this research been, of these dinners been so inspiring that you and Laura have decided to actually go visit that country or are planning to go visit that country? Um, let's see. Uh, I think we went. I mean, part of why we were when we did a trip to Southeast Asia a few months a few years ago, we went to Laos. I think partly because of how much we enjoyed that meal. I think that that certainly helped that. Um, It is inspiring for future ones. Like I would love to go to Georgia someday. The food was just so delicious. Um, And, uh, you know, one that we we didn't end up going, but I did kind of research whether we could go was Oman of all places, (laughs) like on the end of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, the, The flavors are just so interestingly mixed of you know the kind of this combination of arab and indian and african flavors all converging um that i would actually like to go there someday just to eat i would too that sounds amazing how do you and (laughs) how do you and laura divide up responsibilities for these um i mean i am definitely the researcher and the chef that's my i'm i'm the kitchen guy for all those things uh, Laura is the photographer and she's kind of, and she's the host. So usually while I'm scrambling around, uh, you know, getting the last minute stuff together, she's the one welcoming folks and, and getting them all situated. Um, and, uh, yeah, she also, uh, will kind of lead the, uh, the introductory, uh, stuff where we have all the guests kind of introduce themselves share their pronouns, where they're from, and we'll always have a question 
about uh, kind of like a getting to know you question that uh, try to make it relate to the country, but sometimes just something goofy for fun. I think the documentation part is so great and it would be easy uh, with so much to deal with for these dinners to skip them. And I really appreciate that your website, unitednoshes.com has, you know, photos of the event of who's there. It has the recipes. It has some writing from you. I mean, it's really, it's like this sort of a sophisticated culinary scrapbook of the world. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a big part of it. And I've really enjoyed the writing. I think that's been a lot of fun to to explore that over the years. It's one thing I really miss. Um, I'm a little behind on it. I mean, you would, (laughs) before a pandemic, I would have thought, how hard can it be to just like write four blog posts, uh, you know, while I have plenty of idle time. But as you know, everything's kind of gone out the window this year. But um, no, it's great. And it's, the number of times that I've referred back, like even before we talked today, I, you know, last night I was flipping through a number of the articles. But, uh, even for me, it was a reminder of many things that I had totally forgotten about. And I was like, oh, I should cook that again. That looked really good. These dinners are, you know, clearly a really big commitment. And do you think it'd be fair to say that it might be the equivalent of preparing and hosting Thanksgiving dinner, you know, once a month, or is it even a bigger commitment? Because, you know, at this point, you probably know how to prepare Thanksgiving dinner. And, you know, these are all new cuisines that you're learning. Plus, you're having a bunch of strangers over, which is awesome, but carries a very different level of attention, perhaps than if you were having family or close friends. Yeah, I would say, yeah, it's like cooking Thanksgiving dinner if you'd never cooked it before and didn't Mm. quite know who was coming. Yeah, but it is that kind of, it is that kind of level. Uh, generally, you know, may, there's less, less fear of kind of, you know, the, the, the classic contentious family arguments or anything like that. But um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a lot of work. It, it's exhausting. You got to run the dishwasher a few times afterwards. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a passion project. So we, we, it would be impossible to do this if we didn't enjoy it. And it's not like you've also had a ton of spare time all these years. Uh, you were at Google for over a decade. Um, can you share a few examples of some of the highlights of your projects there? Well, one that we, uh, that I think really ties it together is, um, you know, I was the uh, lead marketer for Google Translate for three years. And there's, of course, a ton of overlap between all of this because they both involve, you know, deeply engaging with the people and the cultures of the world. And kind of my capstone project, as it were, was uh, we uh, did a restaurant pop-up in New York uh, for the occasion of having reached 100 languages, where we invited uh, chefs representing cuisines from around the world to uh, cook in this restaurant that we created, where the gimmick was you had to use Google Translate to understand the menu and speak with the servers, because nothing was in English. And so you had to use, pull out your phone and use your camera to understand even what you could order. And then you had to use the voice translation to talk to our servers who were sworn to not speak English. They had a little button telling you what language you had to speak to them in. Um, but that was a ton of fun to combine language and food like that. Um, and uh, other than that, I worked on such a wide variety of things, everything from... Um, uh, elections and crisis response to Google Maps, and then the late the last big project I worked on was Santa Tracker. So got to 
And uh, I'd say all of those actually had a large international aspect to them. Um, yeah, I, I had to not only work with people around the world, but kind of understand how the stuff I was doing related to the cultural expectations and needs. And what, what's Santa Tracker? Mm. Santa Tracker, for those of you who do not have a child between the ages of, say, three and nine, um, is a way where you can see where Santa is on Christmas Eve delivering presents around the world. Um, before that, there's all sorts of fun games and videos and things that run all December long. But the big deal is to figure out, to see kind of how far away Santa is and uh, see this journey past every country in the world. And it's done in 40 some odd languages and tens of millions of people track it around the world. So with this really uh, unexpected uh, shift this year with COVID and lockdown and, and, you know, just so many unexpected changes in how we interact on a day-to-day basis, have you uh, had any, um, I don't know, realizations of what you might want to do next professionally and, and what sort of environment you think would be most fueling for you? Oh man, I am deep in the middle of that thought process. Um, I have plenty of kind of future visioning in my near future. Um, but, you know, it's all making me realize how important it is to, you know, be doing work that aligns with my values, uh, both in terms of, you know, what fulfills me professionally, as well as kind of what's better for the world. Um, and, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's tough that, you know, especially from the perspective of having come from Google at a place where for so long it felt like it was just almost too easy to align personal, like kind of professional success with do-goodery for the world. Like it was really easy to feel like the work that I was doing and being paid well for was really good. And a place like Google, you know, very kind of infamously now, this just, it, it's not that sort of place. I mean, there are plenty of good people doing really good things there, but there's also, you know, it is a huge company that's doing what huge companies do to keep growing and preserve their power and all that. And so it's made me think a lot about kind of what I need to lean into. And part of the challenge is I have a lot of interests. Um, and, you know, it was something I'm trying to figure out what the nugget is in terms of United Noshes is there's something about it where it allows for such great exploration of the world. Like I'm literally by the end of this project, we'll have spent some time thinking about every single country in the world. Um, but it still has a ton of room for creativity. So it's the structure plus the, plus the affordance to, you know, take all these kind of uncertain factors and turn them into something, you know, hopefully fun and maybe delicious and, you know, fundraising and all that. Um, and I'm trying to figure out what, what is it, what's the right blend of structure and, um, and, and freedom that's going to allow me to do better going forward? Well, for whatever it's worth, I find United Nashes totally inspirational on a hundred levels. I mean, I, I love the learning element of, you know, as you've mentioned, diving into a new culture. I love the culinary element of researching, cooking, and tasting new flavors. I love the idea of throwing people together in the backyard, which, you know, I think I love that most of all. And then on top of all that, there's the fundraising, which is also awesome. And 
I don't know if I ever told you this, but I was so inspired after joining your Mongolia dinner that I remember telling an entire audience about it at Google later that week when I was introducing an event for the food program. So oh, fun. Yeah. Um, so um, as we wrap up, um, Jesse, do you have a serious cookbook collection or, you know, has most of your research for all these dinners been online? Um, it's my collection's getting a little better. Um, yes, most of it is online. I kind of, I've had this approach of like, I don't want to buy anything, whether it's a cookbook or a, a cooking implement that is going to be too narrowly focused, but I've kind of maybe cheated a little bit and gotten a couple of regional cookbooks, um, especially for the South Pacific, where I've had a real struggle finding things online. And also there are some cuisines that I've just really grown to love. Um, I've gotten a few uh, Persian cookbooks, like Persian food. I just, just fantastic. Um, and then over the summer, I um, dive deep into Mexican food because, so much more to it than I could get with that one meal. And as long as I was home in the summer and I may as well cook a lot of that. Um, but no, most of the research is online um, because that's also where things are a little less filtered. You're going to get, you know, when I'm doing my research online, I can, you know, pull recipes from Facebook groups and individual blogs or comments on a recipe that was on another website and in the comment is where you get that real nugget. Um, so cookbooks are a helpful start, but usually I have printed up pages taped around the kitchen rather than actually flipping through a cookbook. Jesse, my last question is, can you recommend three books, whether they're cookbooks or, or not, um, to our listeners? Yeah. Um, I, I, I've thought a lot about this question. I mean, one of them, this won't come as a surprise to people who've been following cooking recently, but Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat by Samin Nosrat. It's just, it's to me the perfect book. It's, you know, part narrative, part teaching, part cookbook, and it just all feels like one enormous hug of a book. And I mean, the recipes in there are great, but more importantly, the way that she teaches you to think about how the basic elements of cooking interact, I think it's just, you know, it's one of those, it's not teaching you, it's not giving you a fish, it's teaching you how to fish, which I think is so important. Um, another one is Salt by Mark Kurlansky. I'm not obsessed with salt per se, it just happens to be that two of these titles have that. And the re there's two reasons why I love that book. One, I've just learned a lot more about salt. It's an ingredient I use every day. Um, and every time I read about salt, I use a little more of it. My food tastes better. But um, it's also neat to see the interaction between this truly elemental part of our food and the influence it's had on society over thousands of years. Everything from like, you know, the little trivia that the word salary comes from the word for salt because the Romans used to pay their soldiers in salt because it was so valuable um, to how entire, um, you know, landscapes and industries have risen and fallen based on the need for salt. Um, so I just love those kind of perspectives. And then very different, not really at all related to food, but I'd say the book that has had the biggest impact on my thinking of the world this year is uh, Winners Take All by uh, Anand Giridharadas, which I had to switch to the tab that I pulled up because I did not want to mess up his name. Um, but uh, the central tenet of his book is 
essentially critiquing philanthropy and the idea that, you know, rich people are good for giving away their money. And there's this central tenet of the unspoken rule is do more good, but never do less harm. And this idea, and especially if you look at, say, the way that a Mark Zuckerberg acts, where he makes untold billions through what many people would agree are very problematic approaches, but through funding a hospital and giving money to secretaries of state to run their elections and all these things that in and of themselves are clearly good, essentially trying to like, it's somewhere between an indulgence and a continued affordance to keep racking up what I like to call, um, you know, male life points or dollars um, as, as a way to essentially not critique his, his own uh, actions, but just to feel better about uh, what he's done. So I think it's just been such a useful lens, especially this year as, you know, the pandemic has even further heightened uh, the dichotomies in this, uh, you know, b- between rich and poor. Um, and, you know, as faith in government is falling even more, you know, the way that our society is aligning is deeply, deeply troubling. And I say this as someone who also is pleased to be fundraising. So I understand that there's a little bit of uh, of tension here, but I'm certainly not uh, gaining or giving Zuckerberg level dollars, that's for sure. But it's given me a lot to think about um, in terms of just who is actually doing good in this world. Well, thanks for those recommendations. We will certainly add those to the show notes, uh, which listeners can find at northstarsleepschool.com forward slash podcast. Uh, Jesse, thanks so much for being on the show today and sharing all your amazing work with United Noshes. It's been a pleasure. I mean, this is the most that I've thought about this project for months since the pandemic. And it's been, you know, really... I'm I'm happier than I was at the top of the hour just thinking about all the fun I've had over the years. So thank you for walking me through that. My pleasure. And for all our listeners, um, feel free to check out Jesse's two websites, unitednoshes.com, as well as jessefriedman.com, J-E-S-S-E-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N.com. And thanks everyone for tuning in. If you haven't already done so, it would be so fantastic if you could leave a rating or review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening platform. Take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the North Star Unplugged podcast. The audio version can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you like North Star Unplugged, please subscribe and leave a review on one of those channels. Finally, all prior episodes are also on the North Star Sleep School website at northstarsleepschool.com, which offers an e-newsletter you can sign up for.